Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Jens Heike, economist, writer, researcher, and author of the new book, Out of the Melting Pot, Into the Fire, Multiculturalism in the World's Past and America's Future. And Jens Heike, thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. We should talk about the melting pot. You know, when I grew up, that was a term I heard a lot. I hardly ever hear it anymore. What is the melting pot and how did it come into common understanding in America? So the melting pot is this notion that people can come here from all different parts of the world with all kinds of different ethnic cultural backgrounds and share in a sort of a common culture that, that we form in the United States. And it's actually a very old concept. It goes all the way back to the days of the American Revolution. Uh, so Hector de Crevecourt, who was a uh, French immigrant, wrote about people coming to this country and forging a new race of, of man. And race back in those days actually meant nationality and not you know, black or white. So he talked about that all the way back in, in 1780. The metaphor continued even with a uh, hundred years later with Ralph Waldo Emerson, who likewise talked about bringing people from all, all around the world. And what really put the term melting pot into the American vocabulary was a play that was written in 1908 by Israel Zangwill. Play was literally called the Melting Pot, and it was hugely popular at the time. Teddy Roosevelt attended the first the opening night and loved it. He wrote letters to Israel Zangwill after afterwards, saying it was one of the best plays he'd ever seen. That play again advanced this notion that people can come from everywhere in the world and, and discard their old prejudices and their old uh, feuds against each other and, and form a, a new identity, a, a new forward-looking identity that's based on, on ideals of freedom and, and democracy. So that, that's kind of a brief history. And I, I, so that's going up till 1908-ish. And it wasn't until 1970 or so that, that the concept really came into question and, and people started to shift more towards multiculturalism. You know, so interesting that I think of my own grandmother in particular who came here from Italy and she couldn't wait to be an American. I mean, the whole idea of coming to this new place and all the things you just described that comes with this, but really a new start on life, a new identity, and always and forever identified as American, not as Italian. And that seems to be a way of the past. It's not how we're looking at things today. Yeah, that's so true. My, my own father, he came on a boat, uh, literally into New York Harbor. He was German and he became a U.S. citizen within two years. He joined the army after one year and never thought of himself as anything but American after that point. And, and the wonderful thing is nobody else 
saw him as anything but American, even though, you know, to this day, he still has an accent, but, but nobody doubts his Americanness and which is so wonderful. And because people in this country, I think often don't realize if, if you go to a country like Germany, there, there are uh, people of Turkish descent who have been there for, for three generations and they're still called Turks and not Germans. People of Chinese descent in Malaysia who have been there for 500 years and they're still called Chinese. <laughs> so, so what we had in this country was, it was just an amazing thing. I'm sure your family is like mine. I, you know, we have, we have Irish, uh, you name it, uh, Italian, German, uh, ethnicities from around the world, many of which used to fight against each other. And they're all here together of becoming Americans. It's such a tremendous thing about this country, or it has been, I should say. Jens, you talk in the book about the imperfect implementation of the melting pot in America. And I do want to acknowledge that because we want to pretend that everything's roses here. You mentioned specifically American blacks who perhaps didn't participate in the way that others did. And also there was a question of Japanese internment camps. Actually, the the community I grew up in, Arcadia, California, was home to one of those at the Santa Anita uh, racetrack. So I'm pretty familiar with that. Would you talk about those two instances? That highlights uh, one of the points I do make in my book is that the melting pot uh, for all of American history has only been an ideal, Um, just like many of our other ideals about equality and so on, uh, that in the early years, we did a terrible job of of realizing those ideals. But but decade after decade, we've gotten closer and closer uh, to fulfilling them. Like you said, there were the internment camps where Japanese were terribly treated. Uh, blacks, uh, of course, worst of all, uh, you know, not only do we have slavery and Jim Crow, but there was a terrible redlining and discrimination all the way up, you know, through the 1960s. But if you look at the, the progress, the march through time of us getting closer and closer to that ideal, to give you one example, uh, Germans in 1900 only intermarried at a 2% rate. That went up to 90% by, by 1990. Uh, Germans obviously were one of the first to really, outside the Anglo-Saxon uh, uh, group, were one of the first to be really accepted. But if you look at uh, Latinos and Asians, they've gradually been accepted step by step after that. So that the intermarriage rate for Latinos right now is, is 40%. For, for Asians, it's 45%. Uh, for blacks, it's a little lower. It's around 20%. But what we've had is this steady march of progress towards that melting pot ideal. So when people want to discard it, they say it hasn't worked. They're mistaken in that it has worked. It's just that it hasn't been broadly applied enough. This whole concept of intermarriage is fascinating to me. And I, I see the trends that you point out in the book and the numbers and how they've changed. But it seems to me that people today still hold on to an identity. In other words, we could look at the example of uh, President Obama, um, who really identified as being black, and that was kind of an exclusive identity. So are people losing the distinctions in these intermarriages? Are they hanging on to one side or the other? In the past, they've been losing them, just as, you know, I wouldn't call myself German, or my kids wouldn't call themselves German. I, but, you know, I've seen, we've seen a reversal of that over the last three decades. I mean, I literally had, I had one friend in graduate school who was half, half Salvadoran. And 
he his his last name was Irish, <laughs> and he actually switched names. Um, I think ten fifteen years ago, uh, he switched to using his mother's name, which was the Salvadoran one, uh, to emphasize that. And I you know I think that's been a trend now because uh, people have been encouraged to to identify with the most marginalized group they possibly can. And obviously there are a lot of incentives when you apply to university or apply to a job for doing that, and which is why people do it, I think. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that the, the government and society, and I love how you put this, fostering diversity and then granting preferential treatment based on these qualities. And again, that's happening a lot now. We see this all over the place. It's a very divisive concept. It, it absolutely is. And, you know, I start in the book by describing the sociological experiments that have been done where, where the experimenters took two groups of, or one group of people and, and divided it just randomly and then started giving one side preferential treatment or, or pitting the two groups against each other in a contest for preferential treatment. And, and it is amazing the animosity and the antagonism that inspired between the groups almost instantly. And, you know, in several of these experiments, it, it actually ended up in real violence and knife attacks in one case, uh, just by taking a group of people and dividing them at random. So, you know, imagine how bad it can be if, if that division is based on some kind of historical division. Uh, it's, it's really quite incredible. You mentioned the 1970s and kind of a turning point in the book. You referenced something that President Jimmy Carter said when he kind of decried the concept of a melting pot and said use the term mosaic. At the time, that might have just gone by a lot of people. But looking back on it, uh, that was a, a pretty important point, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the inflection point. And, and it really started... Uh, it, it started then, and it, it kind of took off exponentially, so it, it didn't really hit full stride until until the mid-1980s. Uh, going into the 1980s, we really started to see an, more and more emphasis on separate group identification, and, and it's continued ever since then, un, un, unfortunately. We've got this going on, and then at the same time, we started seeing the rise of, of hyphenated Americans, and again, kind of going back to somebody's heritage, which they, they might have not even been in touch with on a personal level, and yet this became a thing, and I think it is to this day. The tradition of hy hyphenated Americans, uh, it, it does actually go back a, a ways. So uh, Teddy Roosevelt, for example, he actually gave a speech and I think wrote an article criticizing the concept back, you know, in the early 1900s. And I think that kind of squelched it for a while, but then it really came back in, in the seventies, late, uh, late seventies and, and the eighties and, and more and more focus on, on all these, these different groups. Now, something I should mention is that distinctions, these divisions of groups that, that are the multiculturalists have been pushing are really factitious. I mean, they're in a sense, they're made up and they do nothing to honor the actual heritage of the, of the people who are being pigeonholed into these groups. So, so let's take, for example, the, the category Latinx, mm -hmm. uh, which by the way, 40% of the people in that category hate it and, yeah. and say it's offensive. Um, but that's the category that universities are pushing Latinx. That includes people from all over the world that in many cases don't even speak the same language. So, you know, somebody from, from El Salvador, Mexico has, has nothing in common from 
somebody from the Basque country or, or from Spain, yet they're all lumped into this category with tanks, uh, which when you really think about it, it's kind of insulting because it, it, it really disses your actual ethnic heritage. And, and you know, same for BIPOC. Uh, you know, what is BIPOC? That's just a, that's like a color chart classification. And once again, you know, somebody comes from Nigeria or Ivory Coast or, or you know, from America uh, to be cat- categorized as BIPOC, to me, that would be insulting. <laughs> well, I would think so, because it really allows to dissipate the actual heritage, as you reference, of where these people are coming from and what their culture is like. There is no such country as BIPOC or uh, Latinx. So... Who's benefiting from this and who's pushing that? You mentioned the universities, but to what end? I, well, I think a lot of, it, of it's, it's politicians as well, because these are, these are constituencies then for them that, that are they're, they're political organ, you know, units rather than actual ethnic units. The Basque vote outside of northern Nevada and southern Idaho is, is not a very significant one. So it's not useful to talk about a Basque minority to a politician. <laughs> you know, they, they want to lump them together with all the other Latinx people. And I, you know, I think that applies for most of these categories. It's really about organizing a political constituency rather than, than uh, honoring anybody's heritage. You speak of politicians. We had a politician here a couple of years ago, the mayor of Charlottesville, who made a public statement about a pluralistic society. This was his vision of just a wonderful place that, that Charlottesville and by extension, the rest of the United States could be. Should we aspire to be a pluralistic society? And what does that really mean? You know, pluralism like multiculturalism can sort of have a range of definitions. Uh, you know, there, there's this kind of softer sort of multiculturalism or pluralism where, where you honor people's backgrounds and heritages and you respect them. And I think all of us can agree that that's a good thing and something we should do. And the problem is people get that mixed up with this sort of hard multiculturalism where, where you go beyond just honoring backgrounds and cultures. You go to the point of treating them differently, counting them as separate. You really have to distinguish those two concepts. And I think what, what a lot of politicians in this country, the multiculturalists, push this harder notion that, that each group should be identified. And if there's a disparity in outcomes, we need affirmative action or some kind of program to address that disparity. And when you start to look at that implementation of pluralism or what I would really call hard hard multiculturalism, when you look at how that's worked out around the world, the results have been disastrous. That's largely what my book is is devoted to, is looking at all the different examples of where countries went down that route of maintaining separate group identities. Uh, Rwanda is, is a very good example of that, and we know how that turned out. Uh, Yugoslavia, uh, they had the same thing. Where we're, we're going to be a multicultural society. We're going to have separate identities, and, and yeah, we're going to have some preferences for this group or that to, to make up for past discrimination. Well, how'd that work out in Bosnia? <laughs> you know, not very well. 
and you know, so, so Sri Lanka is a similar example. They, they had two groups there that formerly were all considered Sri Lankans. And then they decided that they needed to equalize educational and job outcomes. Uh, so they, they instituted preferences for, for one group. And once again, that, that ended in you know, 50 years of civil war. The Zilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with Jens Heike. The book is Out of the Melting Pot into the Fire. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Get your fix. Shilling Show Unleashed. Our guest is Jens Heike on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. His new book is Out of the Melting Pot, Into the Fire, Multiculturalism in the World's Past and America's Future. I want to go into some of the details that you have mentioned here uh, regarding, let's look at the Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda. You know, that to many people who may be listening is ancient history. They don't remember what happened. You have a story, a vignette in the book about Jacqueline and Matthias, which I think is very instructive. Maybe you give us a backstory. Yeah, so Jacqueline is, actually they say Jacqueline there because um, French is kind of the second language, but uh, she was a young teenager at the time of the genocide, 94, 95. She lived in a small village in Bugacera, which is, is uh, south of the capital. She went out uh, one, one day to get milk for her family. She walked out to the next village. She came back. She found her entire family hacked to death with machetes, 19 people in all, brothers, sisters, parents, uncles, aunts. If you can imagine a teenager coming home uh, to, to that sort of carnage, and there was only one person in her extended family who survived an uncle and hid at night or hid during the daytime. And then during the night, they kind of made their way over several days to, to Burundi to safety and then eventually came back uh, after the genocide was over. Just really a, a stunning account to listen to firsthand as I did from her. And it was very typical. There were, after the genocide, there, there were hundreds of thousands of orphans like her who, you know, had lost pretty much their entire families. It was a devastating thing. You mentioned the Aztecs and uh, Mexico and a very important point that you make towards the end, that there were very few people willing to defend their own culture and society. And I think that's instructive. Tell us about that. The Aztecs, it's really an incredible story of how uh, Cortez, who, who was actually kind of an inept 
military leader came over with only a handful of Span of Spaniards, four or five hundred guys. They overthrew an empire of you know four four to five million people, an army of a hundred thousand people. You know how could that happen? There have been all these different theories about better technology. Uh, the the Aztecs thought that the Spanish were gods. None of that's actually the case. The reality is, that, uh, you know, one on one, the the forces were pretty evenly matched. So so how did the Aztecs lose? Well, problem is only a handful of people in the Aztec Empire actually considered themselves to be Aztecs. What they really had was this kind of multicultural coalition of, of lots and lots of different groups with no shared identity. So you have to think of it as being a sort of a pyramid of, made out of marbles. And all it took was, was this Spaniard, Hernan Cortez, to come and like give that pyramid a little nudge, and, and the whole thing just collapsed. It is instructive for the United States because it's what happens when you have no sense of shared identity and people don't pull together that societies like that go down that path are, are really, really fragile. And, and all it takes is a nudge and, and they just they come tumbling down. Uh, we saw that in the former Yugoslavia that, you know, they just fall apart because there's no no shared sense of anything. You've got a, a chapter on Islam, which is really interesting because the early implementation was much different than some of the exclusive Muslim countries today that have kind of political Islam ruling the um, from the seat of government. So how were things and how did they change, at least in some of the modern day countries? That's a fascinating evolution. So if you take the first 50, 100 years of, of Islam, what we saw was this this inclusive tolerance of other religions that that really didn't exist in in the Christian world and didn't exist in the later Islamic world. So today, for example, you'll see on television all these Iranian leaders, and, and one thing you'll notice about them, they never, ever wear ties. They wear suit jackets, but they never wear ties. Why? Because they think a tie looks a little bit too much like a kind of a crucifix. That's That's how what anathema Christian symbols are, are to them today. Yet you go back into the first 50 years of, first 100 years of Islam, and, and you've got Islamic, an Islamic government printing, minting currency with, with crucifixes and, and menorahs, Persian fire temples on them. Early on, there was this openness to the to other religions that to where they were welcomed into the fold and we actually have examples of the early islamic forces in in one case had had entire battalions of christians flying christian flags fighting on their side against against the byzantines so that existed more or less for the first century of islam and and then islam kind of took this this u-turn where they suddenly began excluding the other religions more and more, giving them what was called demi status, which is subordinate and you know inferior status to the Christians and Jews, and that pretty much can from that after the first Islamic century that was more the approach. But uh, if you look at the first hundred years, there was a, it's a very integrative, open approach that brought all these different religions into the fold and made it extremely successful. You know, they were able to 
pretty much conquer the entire Mediterranean rim within a hundred years, which is just fantastic, you know, spectacular expansion. There is a whole chapter of the book about the costs, the social and economic costs of ethnic division. You talk about factionalization and where it leads. And I think we ought to cover at least a couple of the points. And one of them is violence. And we're certainly seeing that even in this country. You know, what that chapter does is it takes, it, it looks at, a, at a, a numeric measure of ethnic fractionalization, how, how ethnically divided a country is. Um, so, so there are actual numeric values for each country that, that, that I calculated using, using CIA statistics and, and other social statistics. And when you take that measure, it's amazing the correlations that come out. So, for example, it's a very, very strong correlation with political violence. The most fractionalized countries have vastly more political violence than the least fractionalized ones. They also have more suppression of political rights. There are a whole number of other other social pathologies that are highly correlated with the ethnic division around the world. And, and these correlations are stunningly strong. I'm curious, Jens, if there are any nations that are succeeding in unifying in the way that the United States used to be successful. Anyone doing it right? So I, I give a couple of examples, and you know, unfortunately, it's somewhat rare. You know, Singapore has had had good success. Botswana has had a great deal of success. And of course, Rwanda, after the genocide, they decided that they were done with ethnic division. So they pretty much outlawed the Hutu distinction, Hutu Tutsi distinction in their country. They said no more Hutus and Tutsis. We're all Rwandans. That's, that was their new slogan going forward. You know, as a result, that country has has had spectacular economic growth over the last 25 years. And it's really one of the nicest places in Africa now. Kigali, the capital, is it's it's like Geneva, Switzerland. Mm. <laughs> uh, Mauritius is another uh, African country that's very multi-ethnic, but nevertheless has, has fostered this sense of shared identity that, that has worked so well in the United States. In a way, it's only a handful that have really mustered the sort of melting pot ideal that we went after for you know so many years in the United States. Jens Heike, if people want to get a copy of your new book, Out of the Melting Pot, Into the Fire, where's the best place they can get it? Bookshop.org is one good place that will basically order it for your local bookstore. Uh, Amazon is also a great place. Barnes & Noble. It's, it's pretty much available on all the online retailers. You've done a terrific job on a very important subject. Jens Heike, thank you so much for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time. <laughs>